Yes, it could. Something's coming, something good. If I can wait, something's coming. I don't know what it is, but it is gonna be great. With a click, with a shock, phone will jingle, door will knock. Open the latch, something's coming. Don't know when, but it's soon. Catch the moon, one-handed catch. Dun, 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 Mambo. Hello, and welcome to episode negative nine of Movie Musical Memories. Just trying to think of a way to do it in a West Side Story version, but I'm not going to attempt to be Rachel Ziegler. Um, so today, we're back on the, uh, on the original track of proper movie musical adaptations of shows that have been on Broadway in a theatrical movie theater way, not a live production type thing. Um, and this is probably the one that, I mean, it is, it's been the one that's been on my most anticipated movie of the year list two years in a row. Uh, 2020. It was West Side Story, and it was once again West Side Story in 2021. Um, I was very sad a year ago when they, I mean, it was a year ago in a couple months, because obviously it was supposed to come out a year ago, like this week. And uh, I was very sad when it got the delay, and especially the year delay. But that made me feel confident that Everybody involved with making this movie believed in it in the way that it was worthy of being waited on for a year. Um, I don't know how that's going to go well for um, the movie, I can't even, it's like the 355 or whatever with Jessica Chastain. Like, I'm excited to see that movie because a lot of fun people are in that movie with Jessica Chastain, but like... When I learned that that movie got pushed back, like, a whole calendar year, I'm like, I don't know about all that. Like, I guess because the movie was a lot of money to make, but that's one that I don't think... I don't know. It sounded exciting when it first was announced, and then the trailer, which has been out for well over a year now, because it was going to come out last January. It's very, like, okay, sure. Um, I totally forgot what I was just talking about. Oh, the 355, or the 335, whatever the hell it's called. Um, but, yeah, I've been very excited for this movie since it was announced. I feel like this was, I mean, let me look at, yeah, the development for this started, like, in 2014. And Tony Kushner began writing it in 2017. In January 2018, Spielberg was hired. So yeah, this has been kicking around for quite some time, but I do remember it being 
talked about even before like it was officially going ahead with everything and um what else did i want to mention there i mean this is kind of my prior knowledge section um if i didn't make it clear i'm talking about the 2021 uh, movie musical adaptation of west side story it is the second time west side story has been brought to film we talked about the original 1961 film a while ago and that film of course won a lot of oscars in 1961 best picture and uh Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for Rita Moreno, who is the only person to have been in both films, even though there are a couple surviving members of the original film, because it was, of course, a movie with a bunch of young people in it. So Rita Moreno uh, is turning 90, I believe, tomorrow or tonight. I don't know. One or the other. By the time you listen to this, she has turned 90 years old, so... It's been 50 years since the movie came out, and, right, 50? 60, 60 years, Jesus Christ. Um, 1961 was 60 years ago, and uh, we still have, um, what's, I think, um, I want to say that, oh, uh, what's his name? Uh... Oh, I didn't see that. That's fun. Three of the original um, film jets also appear in this film um, in cameos. David Bean, Harvey Evans, Burt Michaels. They are, they're all extras in this movie. And then Andrea Burns, which was the name I did recognize, but I couldn't put my finger on who uh, that was. Uh, she... Also, she played Maria in the 1992 European tour of the musical. Um, where is... What was I looking for? I was looking for the other people who were alive. Um, sorry, I'm uh, reading couple of things why can I find hmm <laughs> I don't know I'm sorry this is a lot of dead air where is the I just need there we go 1961 film ad adaptation um, Richard Bamer who played uh, the original Tony, he is still alive. He's 83 years old. I don't know. So he's semi-retired as, like, in quotations, it looks like. Oh, and then return to acting, of course. Um, yeah, I don't know what he's been up to, if he's done anything recently. He's done some documentary shorts, it looks like. Did he appear on some television? Oh, so Richard... Br okay, so he plays Benjamin Horn on Twin Peaks. There's two guys from the original West Side Story movie who are in Twin Peaks. And I could never figure out, like, 
through old age, which was which. So Richard, it's Richard Bramer and Russ Tamlin. Russ Tamlin is who I can figure out who he is on Twin Peaks because he's got a distinct look to him. He's the shovel the shit out of it guy. Um, let me. So he is, of course, still alive. Um, and his most recent thing was in The Haunting of Hill House. But yes, he also appeared on Twin Peaks. I am, like, curious to see who Richard Baymore was in. God, I need my relatives to stop fucking texting me in a group chat that I have already declared that I cannot attend the fucking Christmas that they've decided to announce a week before it was happening. Like, Jesus Christ, people, do you know how to plan anything during the holidays? I'm hoping that somebody from my family is listening to this, which they are definitely not, because just utter stupidity. Be better at planning things. Twin Peaks 2017. Now, truly, I would not have realized that that was... He played... Yeah, I don't even remember his character in Twin Peaks, The Return. He's the guy who's like, talks to Ashley Judd a lot. That's him? I didn't realize that. Well, he's still alive, and so is um, <laughs> Russ Damblin. And um, obviously, Natalie Wood is no longer with us. That's a whole other story. George... Ch Oh yeah, George Chikaris, he's still alive. He's 87. I did hear that he was... Yeah, so I thought more people from this cast had passed away, but fairly young cast. Oh, he was recently in a movie called Not To Forget as a bank manager. Oh, and he appeared in the Rita Moreno documentary. I think that's why I recently saw him in something. But yeah... Um, let me go back to the main page. Okay, so yeah, my prior knowledge, um, I was following along with the casting announcements, and, um, uh, they, I remember Camilla Cabello was, like, rumored to possibly play Maria, and this was pre-Cinderella, like, I have a definitive opinion on, on the woman, but I remember that being like a, oh, that sounds like one of those, like, spur of the moment or like trying to capture a moment of time with like the new it girl and i'm so happy that they did not go with her especially after how cinderella came out that would have been really bad like yeah i'm glad that that did not happen so they went with a newcomer her name is rachel zegler or ziegler i could never get a correct reading on how to pronounce it. I think it's Ziegler. Ziegler. No, because Maddie Ziegler is in this movie, and she has a different spelling. It's Z-I-E-L-G-L-E-R. That's Ziegler. I think it's Rachel Ziegler is that one. Okay. 
So I'm going to try and say Rachel Zegler for the rest of the podcast, but I'm sure I will not do that correctly. Um, but I do remember a lot of Broadway people like Ariana DeBose and Mike Feist. And I remember the Rita Moreno gender swap casting of Doc and Brian Darcy James and Corey Stahl. When they first announced that David Alvarez would be in this, I didn't know who that was. Um, but then I quickly learned that uh, he is one of the um, the only time this has happened where it was like a shared Best Actor Tony Award for all of the boys who played Billy Elliot in the original run of Billy Elliot on Broadway. That's something that I think, A, is weird. That I mean, I understand that that's how that was going to be able to happen because you can't really go with the whoever the opening night Billy Elliot is to like deem them because then it makes everybody else feel like they were a swing or a standby but I don't know that was very unfair to the rest of the category everybody competing against a unit of Billy Elliot's um funnily enough I, one of my earliest memories of Brian Darcy James is watching him on the Tony Awards as Shrek the same year as Billy Elliot was on. So there is a scene where it's a kind of a group shot where you see David Alvarez and Brian Darcy James kind of, they look like they're next to each other in the framing of the shot. But it's very funny to see this guy like 10 years ago when, or whatever it's been 13 years ago now um this guy beat you for a tony award when he was just like a child how old is he now he is oh my god he's one year older than me he is 27 years old so <laughs> wonderful um yeah, he, he, um, he, oh, he is one of the youngest winners of the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Musical. He kind of, um, after that, he kind of went and did, uh, you know, real people life where he went to go just to school. Oh, here we go. Alvarez left theater to serve in the U.S. Army following a service of two and a half years. He returned to Broadway and became a swing in on the town interesting and then uh he was just on a miniseries that i've only watched the first episode of american rust on uh, showtime and while he was uh attending case western reserve university he auditioned for west side story and he got bernardo interesting very interesting career there um what else um that's pretty much it well and then i um had tickets to see hello dolly on tour at the kentucky center and i realized that um the guy who was originally cast as um barnaby had been swapped out with someone like he had ended his run like before he even made it to dc which i believe DC was either the final stop or a there was one more stop that it was going to be the Betty Buckley era of the tour 
I feel like there were a little bit more shows after that. Yes, because Carolee Carmelo was announced while Betty Buckley was in D.C., so there was a little bit more time before she went into the show because I remember seeing that um, Carmelo came to D.C. to see Betty Buckley in the show before she would do the show. But anyways, like, when you do, when you sign up to do a full leg of a tour, you're pretty much going for as long as, like, the first contract is, and it's up to the producing team and whatnot to, if they want to keep people there, or if they want to switch people out, or if somebody finds another gig, they can swap out, and, um, it was just, it was odd to me that this guy hadn't dipped out early, but then I saw in, like, production photos and whatnot that he had joined the West Side Story movie, and then, right after that, um, I guess he, they had finished filming the kind of big ensemble numbers, because he was in Footloose at the Kennedy Center in September of 2019, and I saw him after the show. Well, and when I saw him in Footloose, by the way, his name is... He's Jet, 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 Jet. Jess Laprato. He plays Arab. And I remember when I was watching... Um, when I was watching Footloose, he was one of the ensemble members. And, like, he was the one that, like, my eyes always directed right to him. Because he's just, like just the life on the stage he just steals every number every scene that he's in and like this is like when in this movie whenever ariana devose is on the screen my eyes just right like went right to her because she just is like a movie star like this i mean she already has kind of broken out in film with her performance in the prom last year and she had a standout episode of schmigadoon this year so she has been kind of rising in the kind of film and television world but like this was i mean because i already she already had her stars born moment with me in the prom and whatnot but this was like this is the birth of a movie star because like the radiance that she has in this movie is just impeccable we'll get to her a little bit later i want to go back to jess Laprato, but i did after the show at the stage door because i did confirm it in his bio i was like and i'm really excited to see you in west side story and he's like yeah i am too which kind of led me to believe i'm like oh are you like more of like a background character who like possibly could be like cut for time or something but no he's like not a one of the major jets but like you know he's got a big part in g officer krupke and he's like He's kind of the second tier of the Jets in terms of, like, the ones who have the lines and stuff. Because, you know, it's Tony and um, Riff and then maybe a couple more. And then his group of guys who kind of are in this, a different s section of the movie, kind of an isolated, the whole G Officer Krupke. They kind of have just half of the guys in that scene. And then the rest of them are, some of them are in cool and some of them are in, in other things. So it's really kind of cool how they let them all kind of have their moment in terms of the ensemble. Because that's one of the things I really loved about this movie is that, like, 
I was amazed at how many people I've actually met in real life who are in this show from Kennedy Center, um, Broadway Center stage performances, or just seeing them in shows. Um, so as I mentioned, just Leprado I met from Footloose. Um, ben Cook was in Mean Girls, and he went, like Joe, um, in Mean Girls, he was the ensemble member who, like, my eyes always shot to him. He was always doing something interesting, and he was always really funny, and he was always really stealing every scene that he was in. And I was really excited to hear when he got cast in this, because he's really just a standout actor he's younger than me oh my lord he's 23 this is God, i can't look at broadway performers age or then i get depressed at what i'm doing with my life um and the other person i met hold on see there are a couple people in this who looked familiar and I'm just like, where have I seen this person? And there's this guy, Kyle Allen. Hold on. See, I before I did this, oh, of course, there's like a fucking... No, I don't really recognize him. Like, everybody, <laughs> there's like a bunch of different guys in this. And I'm like, have I seen you in something before? And I'm sure I will figure that out, like, as I go. Is there another guy who was in Billy Elliot in this show? Oh, wow. Oh, he was in the Canadian tour. So that's kind of fun that there were multiple. Oh, God, he's 23 as well. Is this at least the younger guy who's in the show? Probably not. Um, I can't. I can't look at the Jets and the Sharks ages. The other person I was going to mention is Ricky Ut um, Ubeta, who is uh, Flaco, he's part of the Sharks. He doesn't really get a lot because the Sharks, the Sharks ensemble guys have way less to do than the um, Jet guys. But he actually is one of the only people who was in this film and also the 2020 revival of West Side Story, which was on Broadway for a total of three months, I want to say, because it was in previews for like two. Cause, and then it got, like, maybe a month's run in officially opened. And then they closed it, and with multiple things that happened, but probably the main factor was the Scott Rudin of it all. It did not return to Broadway after the pandemic, and I think it's for the best, because there were a lot of questions, objections, and concerns with... Uh, the content of the show in terms of some of the changes, uh, some of the behind-the-scenes uh, natures of the relationships of certain uh, casting and uh, director directing choices and, um, well, casting, again, of <laughs> um, a certain problematic person who uh, I believe was brought up during his previous Broadway show and then was even more amplified for this one because he got like a lead role as Bernardo in that production. I'm blanking on his name and I don't want to look it up. And um, that and the um, 
And it was one of those things that it was acknowledged by um, <laughs> the formal, formally uh, mentioned producer who was one of the reasons why this whole show fell apart um, on the 60 Minutes special. So you could make uh, connect the dots of how he uh, runs his shows. Anyways, um, but yeah, Ricky, well, Ricky Ubeta was going on for Bernardo a couple of times. I was noticing on his Instagram, and I didn't know if it had something to do about, like, a casting swap after the noise was getting a little loud about the other casting. But no, it was just a kind of a temporary, I guess he was just his standby or understudy or whatever. His understudy. See, look, don't crucify me because... I can never get the understudy standby swing, dif definite, the differential naming of who's what. But I believe he's an understudy when it's somebody who has like multiple tracks but is playing a different role. Don't quote me. Anyways, um, but yeah. So oh, and the other person, um, she really shows up for a quick second in the, um in the gym dance scene and that's Eloise Krop who was also in Cats with Ricky Ubeda um she played Jenny Annie Dots in the Broadway run and Ricky played Mr. Mistopheles in the original Cats revival cast um and she also has been in a couple of Kennedy Center performances I believe she was in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying and she was in The Music Man because I do remember her in the kind of the the reel for How to Succeed. I definitely know she was in The Music Man. Because I remember, because she played kind of a bigger part in that one. And then I don't remember if she did Footloose. But she, she was kind of a mainstay with that Broadway Center stage program. Which I really hope the Kennedy Center brings back. Because those productions were always so magnificent. Like... Really, the only one that I really was, like, lesser on was maybe Little Shop, but that's just because Little Shop is not my favorite show of all time. Well, and, like, Footloose. I mean, because Footloose is a fine show. It's not a masterpiece of a show. No, I mean, I, I'm selling these shows short. They were still very good. It's just, like, they're not my favorite shows of all time. I was very excited to see when they were going to do Bye Bye Birdie in April 2020 with Harvey Firestein and James Vanderbeek and a few other great people, but they canceled that and did not reschedule that. I'm really hoping that that comes back, but I feel like it's not going to be a thing that comes back until fall of 2022 when the new season is announced which makes me sad because i really want them to do it again soon i think one of the big issues with doing one of those is that if somebody does have a breakout case that you would have to cancel a few shows or whatever and like it's just such a short run it's only like a wednesday to monday thing so i don't know maybe that's the thinking we'll see um Anyways, I think that's all I wanted to say about prior knowledge. Um, the first teaser trailer came out during this year's Oscars and was the really, really incredible teaser trailer with 
that like the whistle noises and it's that sequence of the morning rising and then kind of intercutting with them getting into the rumble and then it's that shot of right before the rumble where they the the sharks and the jets shadows start to merge and it says a film by steven spielberg and it's just thrilling and then you cut to hearing rita moreno singing somewhere which i thought was going to be like a reprise type thing but it's she actually gets the song which is kind of one of the things that i was like i don't know i kind of wish a powerhouse singer in this cast could have also done the song and then rita would do like a reprise version of it but um yeah that that teaser was amazing and that was released during the oscars and then fuller trailers started to come out i want to say the next one came out before dear evan hansen or something else around that time but then we kind of got a little bit more showcase of rachel zegler doing tonight and just so the thing about rachel zegler was I don't remember if this was before or after she got cast. I think it was after she got cast. A video went viral of her singing Shallow in her gym because, you know, it was 2018 when they were casting the show. And it was incredible. And I was like, wow, this girl is like this tiny, tiny girl. She, I think, was like 16, 17 at the time. She's like, I think she's 21 now. Let me check. Everybody's aged so rapidly. No, she's 20. Um, so, what, 2018 was, oh my god, <laughs> so long ago. Uh, 19, 20, 21. So that was three years ago. Right, yes. So she would have been 17 when she got the show, or when she got the movie. Um, and this video went viral and it was like wow this girl's playing maria and then she like instantly became like a twitter favorite follow because she was just she's so funny she's so kind of just down to earth i mean she's a real person of course she wasn't (coughs) oh god sorry crisis 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 on aisle five oh my god Did I get everything out of my nose and off my arm? Oh, God, that was awful. I feel like when you're having a mask on all day, you just body bottle up so much of this nonsense. Oh, God. Okay, that was beautiful. I hope you all enjoyed that. Um... God, I feel like I still have shit coming out of my nose. We'll find out later. Anyways, um, no, so she's just, like, she's so, like, just a normal Twitter presence, kind of goofy, funny girl, and she likes a lot of people's responses and replies to a lot of people, and, like, she gets so, like, starstruck when anybody famous, like, even acknowledges her existence. It's just incredible that she's been so kind of popular and famous on Twitter for so long. It just is like, we still have not seen her breakout performance that, like, is going to make her a superstar. She's already, like, a favorite, like, 
personality to follow along with. And then she got cast in the new Shazam movie, and she just got cast as Snow White in a new Snow White movie. So, like, it's one of those things where they, like, really are banking on her before anybody has seen her breakout role. Like, that was how big, like, well, like like the early buzz and the casting choice of her were really well received right off the bat without even seeing a clip from West Side Story. The photos did premiere um, like summer of 2020. Maybe they came out right after they started filming it. I feel like there was one that might have dropped in February of 2020. That was like the gray one of kind of the leads all kind of walking together because I think it was like a magazine kind of exclusive thing and then like more photos kind of came out I think during the pandemic that were kind of the ones that they used when they would write articles about West Side Story is being delayed it's that one of them dancing to America um so I think that's good for the prior knowledge because we're 31 minutes into this podcast and I need to speed up um, so my review, as I was kind of alluding to, is I loved it. I thought it was so wonderful. Um, it was not, it did not kind of knock me out with emotions until the end credits started to roll, and they kind of did a, um, like an exit music, um, bows type, um, whatever it's called, like a, mon- not a montage, but you know, the, when, like the overture where it's all of the songs all together but in the exit version i forget what they call that the inter- not the interlude that's the intermission music whatever it's called if you're a music major you know what i'm talking about um that's when i kind of was like wow that really took me out then um because i feel like because i've been following rachel zegler for now three years on Twitter and her posting all these amazing videos of her singing, her performing the songs kind of, it's like when I saw Leah Michelle do a concert with Darren Chris at the Kennedy Center in 2018, I want to say it was, and she sang, um, don't bring around, I can never say the word, it's rain on my parade, is that, that's the song, I feel like it's called don't rain on my parade, there we go. I can never remember the series of words that are the title of that song. Anyway, she sang that song, which, of course, she sang in the first season of Glee, and I've heard it so many times, and then when she performed it live, it's one of those things that's like, oh, yeah, I've heard this a million times, so, like, "Uh uh-huh, like, this is just me standardly knowing that this is what Leah Michelle sounds like, and just, you could tell that, like, all of the, like, boomers in the audience who just go to any show that is in the concert hall at the kennedy center and have never seen a single second of glee they were like on their feet afterwards giving her a standing ovation at like assuming that was the first time they've ever heard that woman sing that song even though she sang it on the tony awards the first year glee premiered and it's like oh yeah other people who aren't obsessive people like me this is the first time they are hearing this just jaw-dropping stunning like neck hair raising voice of beauty that's coming out of the screen so i'm sure like if i had not 
if like this had come out and like I did not watch any video that Rachel Segler ever put out of her singing, I would have been like, Jesus Christ, like where did this woman come from? But I feel like that is one of the pandemic woes of this movie coming out now, is that time has really gone by since the movie wrapped shooting in uh, like November 2019 because like Steven Spielberg had finished it and then he went to the Kennedy Center Honors the year that I was there, and I sat two seats in front of him, and I was so fucking pissed off at whoever was directing that Kennedy Center Honors that they did not have a cameraman have a camera on fucking Steven Spielberg's face when Audrey McDonald sang somewhere. It's like, are you people kidding me? The man just directed the new film version of West Side Story, why did nobody put a fucking camera on him during that song? I mean, they clearly didn't put the camera on me when I was crying my fucking eyes out to Audrey McDonald somewhere. But <laughs> that's another story. Um, so yeah, Rachel Zegler, this, this is the Star is Born performance. And it ends, the end credits end, like the main end credits end with, with Rita Moreno and introducing Rachel Zegler as Maria. And it's such a, like, yes, this is a Stars Born performance. And she is going to have an incredible career, and I believe she's going to be a very versatile uh, actress from stage to screen, well, screen to stage, kind of doing the opposite version this time. Um, I don't know when she will come to the stage because she's kind of booked and busy with a lot of big projects from a lot of big studios so we shall see <laughs> when she will have the time to do broadway but i hope she i mean but the thing about leah michelle was she broke out on broadway and then did glee and then kind of never came back to broadway because she thought she you know she was a I don't know what Leah Michelle thinks of her, but like you know, she, after Glee wrapped, she didn't go and do a Broadway show like a lot of people would have. Like she didn't do like Amber Riley, who did Dream Girls right after Glee. She did Scream Queens and then did like her own music and all kinds of things. Where it's just like, okay, Leah, but like let's return to your roots here. But obviously, I think. There was a little bit more in the factor of why she has not returned to Broadway, hearing some of the stories of some of the Spring Awakening cast members who I don't believe were involved with the uh, reunion concert, or that would have been quite awkward. Anyways, um, I've mentioned Leah Michelle way too much in this fucking podcast. I will say... Um, you know, I said on the Annie Live podcast that I would talk about Sondheim either this episode or next episode. I think I'm going to talk about him more next episode when I see assassins and come... God, I was about to say come from away. That is disgusting of me. Company. Um, but I think that... Um, so I made like a kind of a iTunes or whatever my music, whatever they're calling it. I still call it iTunes because I'm an old man. A playlist of all of the Sondheim songs that I owned on my phone. And 
Unfortunately, all my West Side Story ones are from the Glee Season 3 production of West Side Story that they did. Um, so I kind of just put those in. And I was reminded that Leah Michelle did play Maria in that version. And so I was listening to like her version of Tonight, which is beautiful, by the way, with Darren Chris. And I was actually thinking about it. I'm like, you know... I'm not going to get into the Ansel Elgort of it all in terms of some of the accusations that came to light a year and a half ago, like June or July of 2020. And, you know, all I'm going to say about the matter is all the money in the world and Kevin Spacey are not Ansel Elgort and West Side Story in um, the ways of... Uh, budget of the film the status of the world in terms of going to reshoot like a good chunk of a movie to replace a cast member like people were expecting steven spielberg to be like oh great in the midst of a pandemic let's get all of the people who are in this fucking number back together to do this number because of I mean, I'm not going to blame, I'm not going to do that. It's one of those stories where I'm like, you know, I didn't, I, I'm not going to comment in terms of like, because I don't know everything. Because I, you know, when it comes to those stories, it's just a lot to take in. And I don't want to read the details about that stuff. So that's all I'm going to say about that in terms of, I'm not taking a side. I'm kind of a neutral on that in terms of, I you know, I will let the court decide if it's something to be concerned about. I feel like that's a bad statement to say, but it's one of those things where I'm like, let me focus on the movie at hand. But I'm just going to say that All the Money in the World is a far different movie than West Side Story in every shape and form in terms of replacing an actor due to allegations. I also want to say that Kevin Spacey uh, owned up to his stuff, so there was a big burden of guilt there where it was a little bit more cut and dry in terms of cutting out somebody. But, um, I mean... Uh, I'm not going to get back into that old shit. I, I really, this is not something that I, oh, there goes the, whatever was left in my nose. That's gross. Um, anyways, um, all I'm going to say is just look, just Google the budget of all of all the money in the world versus West Side Story and tell me if it would have made logical sense for them to spend even more money to reshoot an entire movie with the central character um, debatably of the movie even though he's not in the entire thing still for continuity's sake that's a logistical nightmare to just do bits and pieces of shit um and also yes spielberg is a madman when it comes to developing two movies at once as he often does which is also what Ridley Scott does quite often. But, you know, Ridley Scott is a bit of a, more of a madman than Spielberg is when it comes to just, like, working to fucking death. So, 
I don't know. All I'm going to say is let's stop comparing the two films and the scenarios and who did the right thing versus who did the wrong thing. There's a lot of things that had had to go into any decision of that magnitude. And obviously, that would have been a severe money cost during the pandemic where, you know, that would have even been more money to add the COVID protocols and safety and all of that stuff. So that's all I'm going to say about that. When, why did this come up? I don't remember. Um, Rachel Zegler. I, I, why did I mention Ansel Elgort? I can't remember now. Anyway, I, I don't remember what I was talking about before I got onto this, but um, I'm going to say that Rachel, I mean, Rachel Zegler, Star is Born. I truly can't remember why I went to that whole spiel, but I think that Ansel Elgort people are already very knives out about the performance because of all of the allegations. And all I'm going to say is I thought he did a very good job for his performance, which we have to be fair and say that he was cast and filmed before any accusations came out. So, like, sometimes the Gen Zers do not know how to contextualize a shooting schedule of a movie versus it coming out. Like, I get that people are angry that he's doing the press tour. Um, once again, I think that is a contractual obligation that he chose to not um, skip out on. Because, you know, there are definitely actors who, in the last few years, when they were called out for things, d took the high road in terms of reading the room. But I do think that if this got any deeper into legal issues and stuff maybe he would not be doing the tour but i do think that there is a contractual obligation that everybody must follow that he is doing the tour i was quite surprised when he showed up at the whatever american music awards i was like oh okay we're just going full blast on this um and he's been doing a lot of tours with the whole cast because you know there's a whole thing with rachel zegler about she, on her Twitter bio, has believed survivors and victims or whatever. And people are calling her out for being a hypocrite because she's doing this tour with him. I'm like, everyone, she probably has contractual agreement to promote this movie with her cast members and is not the person who makes the choices. I don't know what the dynamic is on this press tour regarding him with the rest of them, but... They are definitely playing it up to be cordial for the cameras at the very least. So that's all That's all I'm trying to move on from it because I just want to comment on his performance in the film uh, and the rest of it that definitely needs to be talked about. But I don't want to claim to be an expert on all the details and don't have a definitive opinion of the matter in terms of just the whole grand scheme of things anyways i think he does a very good job in this um could oh i remember this 
what I was thinking. Darren Chris, <laughs> because I was listening earlier this week to the Glee versions of some of these songs, and I thought Darren Chris's performance with Something's Coming and of um, Tonight are t- like, those are, <laughs> it's sad to say, but those are the versions of the songs I've listened to more often than the original cast recording of the movie version or any of the revival versions so i just i remember when they made blaine tony in the glee version i thought it was just a really good like casting within the casting of the show and he just sound i mean darren chris just sounds incredible on most like songs he sings and i was just thinking about him the entire time i'm like god he would be so fucking good in this movie but you know he is now in his early 30s and casting him aside a freshly turned 18 year old might have been uh quite something i mean ansel is he was born in 94 so he's 27 versus and so you know we're not getting to age gap discourse but romeo and juliet is about young lovers <laughs> which that's what West Side Story is based off of. And, you know, when I was watching this, and I don't know why, I just never kind of sat and watched the original West Side Story movie or even when I saw the musical done at my local theater or the high school production I saw, that um, I should have added that to my prior knowledge. I'll get back into those productions because I was thinking about them earlier today. Um, I was... Like, I just never kind of sat down and, like, looked at the parallels of Romeo and Juliet while paying attention to West Side Story. So watching this, I kind of paid attention a little bit more. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is clever. Uh, because uh, with the whole passing of Stephen Sondheim, there's been a lot of interviews with him that have been re-airing on podcasts and whatnot. And he they did, like, a three-part kind of tribute to him on NPR's Fresh Air and um, he he kind of pretty much said that he got a phone call from whoever saying we're making a musical version of Romeo and Juliet like that's the way he worded it of what the phone call and the offer of the show was so I never kind of realized that like they were really just like we're making a musical version of Romeo and Juliet I thought because when they say that they always are like you know it's kind of loosely based off of like the themes of Romeo and Juliet and kind of the story beats I didn't really know that they were like directly like Romeo and Juliet is the like what the bones of this project is um because like Once on this Island is very much a um musical that is compared to like The Little Mermaid and also has some Romeo and Juliet elements into it so it's always interesting when people try to like do a like a new version of um or or when a musical is kind of compared to the bones of a different project and kind of looking at the story beats and being like oh yeah i can see the connection there i've never kind of really taken that in with west side story until watching this movie um so yeah darren chris would have been really good in this but i do think he he's still very youthful looking um but maybe he's a little bit older than elgort is so that would have been an issue in terms of 
even bigger of an age gap, which we don't need to get into age gap discourse anymore. Um, as I mentioned, Ariana DeBose gives just a movie star performance. Like, she is just so radiant on the screen. Anytime she's on the screen, just there she is. I don't care if she's like five people away in the background. I'm like, there's the movie star right there. Um, it was incredible when she was hosting the red carpet of the Oscars this year. I was just like, oh, there's your 2022 Best Supporting Actress winner on the 2021 ceremony red carpet. Like, they're just already anointing this girl as the new kind of queen of Hollywood. And people kind of snarked back at me about that. I mean, I don't know if people snarked back, but people were like, eh, we'll see. I have been on this board since last year when I thought West Side Story was coming out originally. I'm like, this girl is going to knock it out of the park in this role. It is a role that has won somebody else an Oscar, which is not a guarantee with remakes of Best Pictures, which has only fairly recently become a thing that is happening more and more often, where we are getting remakes of Oscar-winning Best Picture films. Because, you know, every ever so every so often we got i mean cimarron is probably the first kind of movie that got a direct at like remake of that i might be talking up out of my ass if i can't remember like one movie being based off of the silent film because like ben-hur like had a but but Ben-Hur was a remake of, like, a silent film. It wasn't a remake of a Best Picture winner. I believe Cimarron was the first kind of direct remake of a Best Picture winner, which I learned the hard way because I watched the remake of Cimarron and was like, wait, color was not going on in films in 1931? What am I watching? And then I realized there was a 1960 version of Cimarron why did I do this? But I've already committed, and I'm already, like, halfway through the movie, so might as well finish it through. Um, but yeah, that, and then, I don't know, like, recently we've gotten a Ben-Hur remake with, um, I can't even remember who was in that cast. Was that Jack Hudson or whatever? Not Jack Hudson. Um, Houston. Jack Houston. He's, um, Danny Houston's son. I believe he was in that. I know Morgan Freeman was in that because that was kind of the one kind of upgrade with that film. It's like, oh, we're going to cast a black character with a black actor this time. Um, I'm trying to think what was before that. Oh, All the King's Men was like the big notorious like flop of a Best Picture remake. And then there are a couple more. I don't know. I'm trying to think like of recent ones of if any of them have been like an Oscar juggernaut because Murder on the Orient Express was one where people were like well if we're going to make like that distinguished or that dis whatever word I'm thinking of um if we're going to point out that whole like oh well this part won somebody an Oscar before it's like is Penelope Cruz really going to win an Oscar for the role that Ingrid Bergman played in the Murder on the Ex Orient Express original film it's like no I mean that was kind of a weird win to begin with, so, but, um, I don't know, there have been a couple movie musical adaptations, like, remakes, I can't remember which one I'm trying to think of that was, like, an Oscar-winning role, and it was just like, oh, that's definitely not going to happen again for that person, and I'm totally blanking on who that example was, but, 
Um, in recent years, I'm trying to just go back through the Best Picture winners. Because it was this got a remake, and... Um, was it something else from the 50s or the 60s that just got a remake? I'm totally blanking if there was. Well, I'll have to think about that later. I'm sure it'll jump into my brain midway here, but, you know, um, I'm not opposed to people remaking movies, because this was my whole thing. Um, I don't know if you've listened to the 61 Movies podcast, but I was like, that movie to me, I'm always so kind of, um, I don't know, when people, like, theater people, like people like Lin-Manuel Miranda, or like people of that stature, when they are asked, like, what are the, like, definitive movie musicals? Like, which ones are, like, stand beyond the rest? And so many people cite the 61 West Side Story, Story movie. And I saw that movie kind of around the same time I saw my local theater do it. I want to say I saw that the theater production first because I was so blown away by it and just so, like, the energy in the show is just incredible and, like, just the danger that is going on on stage and just like it just really like riled me up as like a young teenager when I saw it on stage and then I watched the movie version and I didn't feel that same feeling of like intensity and danger and like really really like oh this is how it feels when you see it on stage and you know that is not the movie's job to recreate the feeling of seeing it on a stage and I think that is a thing that gets lost in a lot of movie musical kind of um breakdowns of recent um creations and but I don't know I just always have had an issue with the movie even though I like the movie I gave it four stars I think it is a well-made movie on like the principal elements but like I just don't think it is up to par with the stage show and I, f I with this film now it proves that it is possible to do that I think this movie gets it so much better of what it is like to feel like the danger and the intensity of the show at times now I will say the original movie has a little bit more um, colors to it where it's a lot of pinks and bright reds and just kind of popping in art direction with the technicolor of the time but here it's a little bit more realistic it's a little bit more grittier so I understand why this one was a little bit kind of scaled back and like the really pops of color that the original movie the like the key issue with the original movie is the castings of um Natalie Wood as Maria and George um I just pronounced his last name but um George was Greek and Natalie Wood was American and white and they were playing Latinos and Rita Moreno was really one of the only kind of big Latino actors that really had you know the opportunities I mean and even she if you watch the wonderful documentary about her that came out this year, you know, it was really hard for her, too. They cast her in The King and I, which I just totally forgot about, and got her up in yellow face type 
deals and there were a lot of movies around that time that they just were like Rita Moreno is ethnic so we're just going to cast her as every ethnicity and it really did not it wasn't what she wanted to do but it was all she would be able to do and you know so you can't really fault the movie for that in terms of that's just how Hollywood was at the time but the other key issue, and I know this was also a common practice for movie musicals at that time, is that Natalie Wood is not singing in that movie. It is Marnie Nixon, who was a famous kind of dubbing of the movie musical voices. I believe she also did the Audrey Hepburn My Fair Lady voice. And there just always felt like there was something inauthentic about the some of the performances in that movie and Natalie Wood was rightfully nominated for an Oscar that year for Splendor in the Grass and she should have won for that and you know look people would be like well why that movie was such a juggernaut but like none of the lead actors got nominated or won for it and it was like yeah that's part of the issue with the original movie is that even Richard Bramer I don't think is the most magnetic of the cast or of the time of being cast in that movie um and i always found george's win to be kind of weird and watching this i just was like bernardo is just not that big of like a character to really kind of have those standout moments to like win best supporting actor like there were a couple of Judgment at Newmanberg actors nominated that year. I think, I think that year Montgomery Clift was in supporting, and I think he was my winner that year. But I was always like, that is not who I think about that movie. Like, I even think about some of the jet actors even more. And in this movie, same again, I found Mike Feist as riff just riveting like it's just stole every scene he was in and i say that about a lot of people in this movie but like there were a lot of people just stealing every scene that they were in and like riff is another character who's like bernardo who just kind of comes in it's kind of the kind of the tough guy on campus type thing and spoiler alert spoiling west side story and romeo and juliet he gets offed halfway through and you feel his presence for the rest of the movie just lingering on and you miss him and he is so good in this and so is David Alvarez but as I mentioned I just don't think Bernardo gets the the, the Jets are really the more focused on characters in this film other than Maria and sometimes Anita and so the balance is really and maybe I, I mean it's been 10 years since I've seen West Side Story on a stage to see the proper thing because people keep saying that Tony Kushner rearranged some of the songs and I like I honestly did not like clock any big differences in terms of song order though a couple of them did seem a little like oh wow this song comes right after that like take a beat like my lord um so other than that like i don't i don't know what the big changes were because i'm not like a west side story like like i don't i don't have west side story memorized in terms of 
orders of songs and such, but um, this movie, at least, is very jet-heavy in terms of its uh, focus on the ensemble. Um, so yeah, I always found George's Wind to be weird. And then Rita Moreno, I know it's a very unpopular opinion, but everybody, when they talk about Judy Garland was robbed of a competitive Oscar, they always go to the 1954 Best Actress race and shit on Grace Kelly for winning for The Country Girl over Judy Garland for A Star is Born. And I think Grace Kelly is incredible in The Country Girl and deserved her win, but I also think Judy Garland would have also deserved to win as well. It's a very much a tied for first place situation for me, but I give the slight edge to Kelly. And I also do that because I would give Judy Garland an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for Judgment at Nuremberg this year. I think Rita Moreno is very good and is probably the best cast member in the original film. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really find... Her performance like gotta give that woman an oscar type of a performance and it's also partly because anita like a lot of the other supporting characters in the show only gets like two kind of standout moments which is america and then a boy like that and okay three because it's also the scene where she goes to doc's place towards the end to um tell tony that maria is coming and then the Jets rile her up and attempt to rape her. And then she replies, or she just tells a lie and says, well, tell Tony that Maria was murdered. And she just was like, I'm going to protect Maria from the Jets once and for all. Because they are responsible for killing Bernardo, who is Anita's boo thing. And so um, I can't really remember the impact of those kind of this because America's the one that I can remember vividly and she has so much energy in that performance but I do think Judy Garland is the superior performance that year and I know it's sacrilege and I'm sorry but that's my opinion I don't think that Rita Moreno should be an EGOT I'm sorry um it's very nice that she is and it's definitely great for having a Latino woman as an EGOT winner just for the sake of the history books and representation but you know you gotta have a favorite in the category and that does have cause and effect I do think maybe I it's very weird that she did not get nominated for the Ritz which was about 15 years after West Side Story um it was a very weak best actress field too where she could have easily gotten nominated she's only been she was only nominated for Wesley's story her one and only nomination which she won for but she was kind of more you know she jumped to television a lot and then she did a lot of movies after Wesley's story but like nothing that took everybody by storm quite like Wesley's story did I think the Ritz might have been the closest of the post Wesley's story performances uh, but yeah Watch her documentary. It's very good. And uh, fuck Marlon Brando. God damn, that man is awful. Like, I, you know, he's one of those actors who have always been like, 
of the people who are like, oh, who are the great actors of all time? And I'm just like, Marlon Brando is somebody who I think did a lot of great work in the 50s and then kind of peaked there. Because <laughs> a lot of his stuff from like the 60s, like I can't even think of like any standout work he did in the 60s, which I'm probably forgetting something, but like his heyday was really in the 50s when he was really on a roll. But by the 70s, even like The Godfather, I think it was a very hammy performance that I don't think is like the greatest performance of all time, like a lot of people think it is. And, uh, you know, some of his 80s perform. I mean, oh God, Last Tango in Paris is just a mess of a performance. Whatever he's doing in Apocalypse Now is just weird and fascinating and also like, yeah, he really went off the deep end, um, but what he did to Marita Moreno is inexcusable and awful and rotten, and yeah, fuck Marlon Brando. Anyways, um, what else? Anybody, um, Corey Stahl, great as the lieutenant, um, Brian Darcy James is very fun as Officer Krupke, even though he doesn't really get a lot to do, um, and then it was very, um, I think that's really all the main principal people. Oh, the guy who played the teacher. Is that... Was he in What the Constitution Means to Me? I don't... Where is... Um, that's not who I'm thinking of. So there's like there's a supporting actor in that show. I'm trying to find what his name is. Hmm. Where is it? Where is it? Cause he, I think he played the teacher in. Like his name is not even on. The Wikipedia page. Um. Oh, Mike Ives. Mike Ivinson. Was he in the movie of West Side Story? Is he on this list? That's my question. Mike Ives. Yes, he did play Gladhand. I thought that was him. I'm. Oh, so I met him at the stage door. I believe I met him at the stage door of when that show was at the Kennedy Center. So there's another person who I've met who is in the movie. And, of course, my Wikipedia crashed. Um, oh, I just... I want to talk about Spielberg's direction. The opening sequence is incredible. That is the danger that I'm talking about with the jets. The moment um, one of the jets attacks one of the sharks with a full-on, like... A full can of paint and just bashes them in the head i'm like oh my god like i literally like audibly went oh like yikes and like then there's a shot with the new the young up-and-coming jet who has like a giant nail in his fucking earlobe i'm like spielberg we're doing a pg-13 movie here i thought and yeah some of the violence in the early scenes i'm like whoa what are we doing here? This this is the danger that I was talking about that was missing from the original movie. And granted, the original movie was still in the Hays Code period, so I'm sure it was not 
able to be as violent as they wanted it to be. So it was really cool how this movie moved and like you were really in on the action without it being like shaky cam running through all of this stuff. The like the f actual camera work in this movie is so crisp and just runs with the action in a perfect manner. Same thing with the dancing. It lets the dancing do its job. And that means pulling the camera back and looking at the entire legs going up in the air and people twirling. And it's just like, it's not this constant cutting, which as much as I enjoyed in the Heights was definitely an issue in the Heights where I'm like, can you stay the camera for five minutes just so we can see this big group number where everybody worked their fucking hardest to do this choreography. And it's just like, let, let me admire the choreography for just five seconds whole, not like three seconds, two seconds and whatnot. This movie, like they really do a great job with the camera work and the editing is like, it's never like lingers for too short and goes on to a next dance move. There's also this really cool, transition shot that I I feel like it was during the the Jets are going to have their way tonight which I think is just titled tonight reprise if I'm not mistaken let me see if the music is it just called oh the tonight quintet that's what it's called I believe there is a transition shot in there where I literally like gasp it was like oh my god that was so great um yeah, but, like, some of these scenes, like, the night fight during the rumble, it's just, like, it has the intensity of a Pirates of the Caribbean sword fight. It's, like, Spielberg is an action director in this movie, unlike Guy Ritchie, an, like, an actual action director directing musical numbers in the Aladdin, like, movie, where he tried to actionify musical numbers that like with his slow-mo technology it's like no that's not that's not how you do the scene you don't do a chase scene to one jump with slow-mo action like that's not what you do you do it like spielberg does here where it's a dance it's still a musical it's a dance it's not just an action scene but there's choreography that is at play here but same thing with what they did with Cool. Cool is like one of the great numbers from the musical where it's this really like adrenaline rush of a song. And they don't do what they usually do in the show here. They make it a uh, kind of a standoff between Tony and Riff when Tony finds out that Riff has bought a gun. And he kind of takes the gun, Tony takes the gun from him as like, if you're so cool, show me how, like, try to take this gun away free or get your gun back. And he does it on this like overpass that's like full of holes in the floor. And he's just jumping around doing all these acrobats, like, come and get it, you cool boy. And it's cool, I mean, pun intended, cool how they redid that. But that's a number that I just feel like should be at night and during a dark alleyway not 
in broad daylight. That was one of my only kind of issues with some of the scenes in this movie. I'm like, these are all taking place in the broad daylight, and I feel like the song would be better if it was at night. Like, I thought it was interesting to do America, like, in the middle of the day, in the street, rather than a rooftop. I thought that was an interesting change. But I, I kind of think Cool is a song that should always be done, like, at nighttime. And kind of, that's one of the more dangerous songs as well, where it's just like, I don't know if this should have been just, like, Sun's Out doing this song. Um, going into some of the more of the musical numbers in terms of the uh, the gym, that the gym dance sequence is always a favorite of mine, even from the original movie, that... Bum 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 ba dum bum 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 mambo. That's always just such a thrill to hear. Um, tonight was done very well, um, and then America was done very well. I really enjoyed G Officer Krupke, which they did in with only a few of the jets. I think Riff usually sings that song, but this one was a select few of the jets are in questioning at a police station about a rumble that the police have caught word is going to happen and the jets are not telling them all this information and then um anybody who's the kind of the wannabe girl the girl who wants to be a jet and this movie is alluded to be either non-binary or trans i think i read somebody mention that the character was trans, but it, it could be either or. They do make comments about certain genitals stuff that I'm like, well, if you're going to reframe this character into being trans, I don't think some of the dialogue that was in that scene was called for in terms of updating the script. But if it was a non-binary character and it was not, I don't know. The point of the Jets are that they are awful, just awful young adults or whatever age they are. But, you know, it kind of came off where it's like, oh, like, I know this is a 60-year-old, well, I mean, even more so because of the original Broadway show, a 60-ish, 65-ish year old piece that you're obviously updating the script, tinkering with things. There could have been a tweak there. There was just one, like, kind of comment that was like, that's a little, you know, you could pull back on that one a little bit. But I thought it was very interesting to reframe that character as kind of either a non-binary or trans character for the time period. Um, but anybody's makes this big distraction and gets the entire police station to run after them. And so then they kind of lock the doors and to entertain the new boy. And like, they're kind of telling the new boy about like, this is how we jets deal with the police. Um, it's a really fun number. They kind of go around the office and take different supplies. And like, they act like they're a judge in a courtroom at one time. And they act like, all kinds of different characters and it's a really fun number and I like I really enjoyed how they did that number in this and they didn't have to incorporate every single jet into the number um 
One Hand, One Heart was done really well. I Feel Pretty was done pretty well. Um, the one that I think... in term, I was thinking about this during the movie. In terms of for the Razzle Dazzle Award, I think the number that I thought was the best in terms of singing and intensity and meaning in the movie was the A Boy Like That, I Have a Love number between Anita and Maria. I think that's a really great showcase for both. Rachel and Ariana um but in terms of like a full-on like from every single perspective of the piece I mean the gym is pretty great and um America of course is always a standout and like the prologue or the jet song kind of combo that whole entire kind of first 15 minutes of the movie is so thrilling I still think, you know, I mean, in terms of choreography, it's definitely probably like the opening 15 minutes as a whole piece is kind of the standout. But I think in terms of the impact of the story, the performance of the songs, I'm going to give it to a boy like that. And I have a love because I really thought that really worked in this in a gut punch of a way where like you could use that for either actress's Oscar clip because it just really worked well together. Um, I guess I'm jumping around. My Liza Award, obviously, it's, it's going to be Rachel Zegler. Just, that was already a no-brainer going in, but, like, it's also shared with Ariana DeVose and Mike Feist. I think they, all three, are really spectacular in this. Uh, Mike Feist, more for kind of the performance parts, and then... Because, you know, Riff doesn't have, like, a grand, like, belting number. It's a very kind of, he just leads the pack with his vocals. And Mike Feist is a great singer. And I was shocked. I was shocked more. But then, now I'm saying this and I'm really looking stupid. Because Mike Feist really got a fan base from being in the original production of Newsies. So, of course, he can dance like that, now that I think about that. But I only really know Mike Feist through Dear, Dear Evan Hansen, where that role... He does, um, Sincerely Me is kind of the only dance number that Mike Feist does in that musical. And so I was just not expecting, I was like, wow, Mike Feist is like doing ballet, like national ballet, like level dancing in this movie with, of course, Justin Peck, who's like this big deal in the dance world. And I, this was like my first kind of real introduction, sorry, adjusting myself I was falling off the bed. This was like kind of my first big um, introduction to his work. Because, I mean, I saw the Tony performance from Carousel, which he like, choreographed and won a Tony Award for, and it was kind of a big deal when he went and did that. And um, I don't know. I just um, I was not expecting this performance from Mike Vines. I knew he would be good, but I didn't know he was going to be like, wow, like this good. But... I think, yeah, those three kind of get a shared. If I have to pick between the three, I still think Rachel Zegler really, really. I mean, it is her stars born moment. Even though I do think Ariana Bose is just like, this is the definitive of a movie star performance. And if she is not leading movies, like for the next 20 to 50 years, <laughs> there's a problem. Um... And then my, like, Pierce Brosnan award, I'm like, 
I'm not going to give it to Ansel because I think he did a very good job. I mean, like, is he as good as his co-stars? No. Does Tony need to be as good as those characters? I mean, if there's a rich history of the people playing Tony not being the standout of the production. So I think he has a very nice voice and we knew that going in because he... Um, I saw a clip of him doing Link in high school that was on YouTube um, and he's done music stuff but mostly like kind of DJ electronic music so I don't think he has really like sung song in a while but I, I knew that he would be able to do this part but um, I don't know really I don't think anybody was pretty weak in this in terms of singing or miscasting in the slightest the only i mean like rita morano gets to sing somewhere and it's not as like bombastic as it usually is sung but it's still a very well done number for what purpose it is serving in the piece and i would never like say that rita morano is giving a bad performance in this movie whatsoever she's very good um, so I don't really have a Pierce Brosnan award for this movie. I mean, yeah, I really don't. Um, so I kind of skipped over. I was still trying to go through my review. Um, there's been some comments about the cinematography of this movie. Um, you know, Spielberg has had this certain look for the last decade or two. Um, and it's this with the cinematographer, Jamis. Siminski, let me pronounce his name properly. It's um, Janusz Kaminski. He is Polish, and I mean, he's, you know, Spielberg's go to guy. He won for Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan deservingly. I think more so him than. Wait, he was married to Holly Hunter? Wow, that was interesting. Um, let's see, like, he did, he did Ready to Player One, he did The Post, he did the BFG, he did Bridge of Spies. The one that I think is, like, the worst that he's ever done cinematography-wise is The Judge. The Judge is very much like a self-parody of what James, uh, what that, um, cinematographer is famous for, because, like, he's just really known for these, like, really over, like, I can't even describe it's like overexposed like bright like window sunlight coming in and there's this look to it it's very much what Clint Eastwood's movies look like too where it's just like it looks like there's not a lot like it's not crisp and it's like it's trying to look like a movie shot on film or I don't, I don't even know really how to put it into words it's just it's this really harsh look and it's something like I know a lot of people really love what Lincoln looked like and I don't think Lincoln looked Lincoln is a movie I have a lot of difficulties with because I think so so much of that movie is like not the movie that that movie should be and one of the things is how it's shot it's very ugly looking but like Bridges Spies, you know, he does a very good job with the exterior scenes, but some of the interior scenes are just like this. The post kind of looks a little bit more glossier than some of these movies that I'm mentioning here. 
but like I, I loved Ready Player One, but Ready Player One has kind of a similar look with like some of the more realistic scenes. Um, but like the diving bell and the butterfly has really cool cinematography, the way he did that. I think it's hilarious that this man shot funny people and how did how do you know when he took a break from Spielberg in his kind of um period between Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls and then the double punch of Adventures of Tintin and Warhorse. But yeah, like a lot of these movies, I would say from War of the Worlds to now have really looked similar in terms of this really over harshness to the image and i think it does work better in this movie at times like definitely during the opening rum any of the rumble scenes it really works some of like the america outdoor kind of big dance numbers i thought maybe it was a little off in terms of like really capturing the beauty of the scene um and then there's some scenes in the apartment that were a little flat looking but other than that i do think there are some really cool <laughs> here i go again pun intended some really cool compositions and well i mean i the shot that i keep coming back to and is the image that i've used to tease this movie all year is the one that is in the teaser with them coming in to do the rumble and the shadows of the jets and the sharks like are combining like that whole sequence in the rumble is what just that is where it looks its best it's really well done um but yeah this, i don't know he's a very got a very fascinating list of films that he's worked on mostly with spielberg but he's just kind of fallen asleep at the wheel in terms of his um his kind of style and look to his movies oh my god he did oslo which it was this tv movie version of the tony winning play that was on hbo max and also hbo i guess i can't ever remember which is which like if it's exclusively or if it's both i think it was on hbo first but that movie is like a self-parody of every hollywood movie in the last 20 years that has been shot in the middle east where it's like this gross overexposure of sunlight and like sand desert kind of look versus like this gross like yellow and i think it was very orange in this movie it was like this is so over the top so yeah i think it's more he is the issue than spielberg specifically yeah i think there is a reason why he hasn't gotten a best cinematography nomination since lincoln it is oh no he got nominated for diving bell because i was about to say that every single one of his nominations was for a Spielberg movie, but he got the one that was not a Spielberg movie. But yeah, I definitely think his Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan wins are well-deserved. I don't think his War Horse nomination was very warranted. That movie got a ridiculous number of Oscar nominations for a movie that really does not exist. And when it came out, not many people really cared about either. Like, it was kind of one of those, like, penciled in from the beginning of the year oscar contenders and it was like got fine reviews and it was just like oh well it's here to stay and then it got like 11 nominations and no wins let me do that count real quick it was nominated for 
Oh, it was only nominated for six Oscars, but it got zero because it's a forgettable film. But it felt like it got more nominations than six because it was just like, who watched this movie? <laughs> because it really just came and went. Um, but yeah, I don't really like the Lincoln cinematography, but I do really like the diving bell and the butterflies cinematography. Um, the production design is great. The costume design is great. The sound design is really great. Um, I saw this in Dolby and it was very well done. Um, I just, I, I, I don't like the IMAX theater. It's too loud in there, but I'm sure it looks great in IMAX as well. Um, I just prefer the Dolby screen. And then, um, anything else? Um, Tony Kushner does a wonderful job with the script and the subtle changes, as I mentioned, were subtle enough that a casual West Side Story fan like myself, really the only thing I noticed was the gender swap of the Doc character. That was the only big difference I recognized in the piece. Um... Any other elements of the film that I would talk about? I really think this movie should win the SAG Ensemble for Stunt Ensemble, because I think the, that was really well done in this movie. I'm sure Dune or whatever fucking Marvel movie is going to win that, but I really thought they did a really great job with that in this movie. Um, all of the songs, as I mentioned, I thought were really well performed, and the way they were staged were really well performed. Um anything else i don't think so so the world's reviews this got a 93 percent on rotten tomatoes at the moment um i think the reviews have pretty much come in oh there is a differences among film and stage version section that i will go over later um let me check once again so 93%, um, the consensus says Steven Spielberg's West Side Story presented a new look at the classic musical that li lives up to its beloved forbear, forbear, sure, and in some respects might even surpass it. And yes, I agree with that. I, I do. I mean, I know there are people who the original film is like their favorite movie of all time and think it's a perfect film. And I just, you know, even though it is of its time, of the certain casting choices. I just, you know, I don't think that movie works perfectly with the casting decisions of Natalie Wood, especially, who does the best she can as Natalie Wood because she is a wonderful actress, but was clearly not right for that role because, I mean, just because of the time and, I mean, because it was not correct in terms of the casting all around in terms of singing and race um but yeah i think this movie because people when they said when they all put their noses up at spielberg making this movie and they're like who asked for this why bother i'm like i i want to see this movie because it will correct the mistakes of the original film and it did it really did to, for me the casting was the big thing and the bringing in the danger element and feeling the kind of feeling you would have when you're watching the show on the stage. I think this movie scored perfectly on those two big complaints I had with the original film. Um, I'm not, some of these Wikipedia things are so, so big in terms of like the different, um, 
like these are not quotes <laughs> these are like full-on just paragraphs from people's reviews um i will say for because i've already done my awards i'll skip over to the current award season this was a late breaker in terms of like getting in in the last minute for voters of these various awards bodies to see and it wasn't because it wasn't done i think it was just because they just wanted to hold on to it as being kind of the final surprise of the season i don't know why it didn't like close afi or something or open the new york film festival or something but you know it it's hitting while the iron's hot right now but this is something that when both oh the both oscar gold derby prediction centers opened in 2020 and 2021 i immediately put it as my placeholder for best picture and best actress and best supporting actress immediately and even i had spielberg in as best director as a placeholder until jane campion kind of like that narrative really took over the conversation i'm like yes that is a narrative that makes sense and i don't know if spielberg because the thing about spielberg is he is a guy that like he's going to win a third oscar at some point it's like the meryl streep thing where meryl won her oscar for um kramer versus kramer and then she immediately like three years later won another oscar for um, sophie's choice and the same thing happened with spielberg except spielberg infamously waited a long time to finally win best director the oscars really like they point they put their nose up towards spielberg so many times early on in his career infamously they had him on the phone when the oscar nominations were being announced the year of jaws and he missed out for best director over fellini for amacord um and he even mentioned that they like they went with fellini or was it fellini or was it i think it was fellini i might have gotten that wrong who directed amacord Amarcord was directed. Okay. Yes, Fellini. I was just trying to double check that. I was like, something sounds wrong there, but yes. Um, and then he did not get nominated for The Color Purple. He did not win for E.T. He did not win for um, Indiana Jones. And um, he had a million other things that came out in that time. And then it was finally Schindler's List where it's like, yes, I mean, this is finally like spielberg was like i'm going to make the oscar bait movie that you really wanted me to make and he did it and he did it perfectly and he won and then shortly after that he won for saving private ryan like five years later because that was another one where it's like yes we have to give it to him for this another one and a lot of people thought that lincoln was going to be his third oscar and then ang lee kind of because what happened with that season was everybody thought it was a den deal ben affleck was going to win for argo he does not get the Oscar nomination, so people are like, uh, I guess Spielberg is going to just walk his way to a third one. And then Ang Lee kind of started taking up the prizes for Life of Pi, deservingly so, I think, as well, because that movie is such a vis visionary treat. Um, so I do think Spielberg is destined to win a third. I don't think the movies he's made since Lincoln have really had him in that conversation i mean he hasn't been nominated since lincoln because bridge of spies um the bfg which 
I think even he wants to forget he made that movie, honestly. I'm sure he's proud of that movie, honestly, but that movie's so boring. It's um, Bridge of Spies, the BFG, and then it's also Ready Player One and The Post. Well, The Post was first, and then Ready Player One. And only, like, The Post and Bridge of Spies were, like, the possibles of him getting nominated. But that didn't happen, and... I think he's definitely going to get nominated for this. There were people just, I guess, as the season started to progress, people, like, kept putting West Side Story lower and lower in the productions. I never moved it around. I think I moved Spielberg down one so I could put Jane Campion up one. And I've had DeBose and Zegler in my top number one slot since the beginning. And I'm just going to keep them there until the season progresses. Just as a, I told you so, they were getting nominated at the very least. Because when I do my like awards predictions on Gold Derby, I do them in the order I think they're guaranteed a nomination, not so much a win. So, because people are like, I have this person predicted to win on Gold Derby. It's like, I don't do that until like the actual nominations are announced. And it's like, okay, now I'm ranking them in order of likelihood of winning i right now i kind of in the phase of likelihood of getting nominated um and i just knew that if zegler i mean i knew zegler would pull it off just with her voice alone so i just i knew that was going to happen but i'm like if that like once she like shows like the rest of the performance with the actual like acting part of it put into the singing that's just like a destined stars born nomination right there and then ariana devos playing a role that won somebody else an oscar but also her being ariana devos i knew she would kill it and she did and now she's rising back up into the oscar production same with thing with zegler i'm like i told you people um some people from the original reviews were really saying that rita moreno also was going to get nominated like fully i don't think it's enough for her to get nominated. It would very much be a sentimental nomination. Like, she's very good for what she has to do, but it's not, like, any standout work from her. Like, somewhere sung very well for the tone that they're doing, but, like, it's not, like, a I dreamed a dream and lay Miz moment for her. Um, and then... I don't know. I was talking about me predicting, but I also have it in a lot of tech categories, which I think a lot of people had, and so they didn't have to change that. It was like, really, they were thinking, what is it going to do over the line? It was always in the best picture top 10. It never really fell out of there, but it's starting to rise back up. And do I believe this movie's going to win best picture? I, I can't really say at this point. I really don't think there's anything that's like, oh, this is winning best picture. I would like, out of the contenders that have arisen, this is very much my favorite at the moment, if Annette is not going to make a grand return. Um, but this just has all the ingredients of what they're looking in for a Best Picture winner specifically for this year. After the uh, just dumbass backlash of all of these movies are too independent, when it's like the pandemic happened only independent films really were able to be released other than a few junky netflix blockbusters and tenet which everybody ignored 
So it was like, what are your options here? I mean, these are all great films. And this is what the Oscars is about, rewarding great films, not popular movies. And so I think there's going to be concerted effort. And I think a lot of people, for some reason, have had this weird-ass delusion that Dune is the movie that is going to pull through as the populist return to cinema's film that's going to sweep the Oscars. And I'm like, are you people fucking crazy? That movie is mediocre and even if it was good like that is not a movie that wins best picture it is not a lord of the rings type situation it's not even a star wars type thing i don't believe people who think that movie is going to get a best picture nomination or best director nomination and some of the fucking awful categories that it possibly could get nominated for like best score and cinematography both that to me were both horseshit. I'm like, this is the year of the Oscars that I'm like, are we going to nominate the most horseshit elements of certain movies this year? And it's the Dune score and the Dune cinematography, Kristen Stewart in Spencer, and the score of that movie. And another, there's another, I mean, the Power of the Dog score does not bother me as much as the Spencer score did, but I think... This is a real miss year for Johnny Greenwood, in my opinion. I'm not a big stan of his to begin with, but I thought his Phantom of Thread score was incredible. But, God, like, there are some really <laughs> horseshit nominations people are predicting, and also to win. And I'm like, dear God, I hope not. Um, but the things that this movie has already been nominated for, um, it is on a lot of top 10 lists the national board of review put it in their top 10 list and rachel zegler also won the national board of review best actress award um some of the critics groups have nominated ariana DeBose and rita moreno and rachel zegler um, the washington film critics which are the film critics that i've been running into quite a bit in the last few weeks as they crammed for their awards um they nominated the movie, the director, supporting actress, youth performance for Zegler, adapted screenplay and production design, um, Hollywood Critics Association nominated for best comedy or musical, director, supporting actress, and cinematography, and yeah, it's getting a lot of um, notices. It was also mentioned on the AFI um, top 10 list, and... I think that, um, so the Golden Globe nominations are coming out probably on the day I release this episode. I'm going to try to release this episode on Tuesday because I've just really fucked up the schedule. I was supposed to do the Annie Live podcast on Tuesday. Keep forgetting. I'm just going to go ahead and do that tomorrow on Friday. Um, and then I'll do this on Tuesday before I go to New York and forget about this episode. Um, so I think the Golden Globe nominations either have come out as you're listening to this or yesterday on Monday. I can't remember which one it is. And, um, so the Golden Globes, we all know they're going to be different this year. They're not going to be televised. They've upended their voting body to be more diverse. And, um, I, we don't know what they had access to, what they're going to vote on. It's not going to be like past years different voting patterns and kind of the schmoozing techniques that studios could really sway them with so 
I do think that this movie, if they got to see it in time, is going to do very well in their comedy musical category in director, actress for Zegler, um, supporting actress for DeVose, possibly supporting actor for Mike Feist. Um, you know, it's their best actor, comedy or musical category. They could nominate Ansel Elgort, and I do think that would be a PR nightmare for them, especially this year. I think they are going to try to play it safe as much as possible and kind of, uh, for their sake, and no offense to Ansel Elgort, I don't, I hope they don't nominate him because I do not need to hear the PR nightmare of that added on to the Golden Globes. Look, I'm rooting for the Golden Globes. I think they are a fun award show even though they produce some batshit crazy winners, but they get a lot of cool nominations for movies that just never have a chance at the Oscars, especially comedies and musicals. And this is such a big year for movie musicals that I would hate to see that not get noticed at the at an award show, the, um, the levels of musicals that have really done in the field i'll go over let me just do it now so i think that because gold derby for some reason won't even they're not even going to do a prediction center for the golden globes this year so i'm kind of like i haven't really even thought about what's going to get nominated because once again i have no idea what movies they had access to and have voted on so i do think the best comedy or musical category will probably be west side story don't look up the french dispatch tick tick boom and then it will either be in the Heights, they might go for Dear Evan Hansen, I don't think they will, but the, I think Ben Platt is going to get nominated, whether anybody likes it or not. Um, I Not Cinderella. I think everybody was talking about Jamie was too small of a release for them to really go crazy for. I thought it would get nominated last year when it was scheduled to come out because it was a like a musical that was coming out and it was kind of Eurocentric. So I don't think that's going to happen. And then I'm thinking about the other comedies that have been released this year. I don't know if being the Ricardos was submitted as a comedy or a drama. So that's another factor that are what movies were even submitted for which genre. Um, so I think the, the, the safe four is French dispatch. Don't look up West side story and, um, tick tick boom because tick tick boom is really growing in momentum there are critics groups that are really giving it best picture nominations and best director notices um, the afi included it part of their top 10 i i really i'm very because i had it in my top 10 as a placeholder for a while for best picture and then i saw the movie and i'm like i don't think there's going to be enough buzz for this and i've been very impressed how that movie has really been holding up very well with critics groups and just momentum on the internet. Um, but I do think that Zegler will win Best Actress at the Golden Globes regardless. I mean, I don't even know. I mean, Jennifer Lawrence will probably be nominated for Don't Look Up. Um, and then a lot of the movie musicals this year have been very male-centric, so I don't, God hope, they don't go for Camilla Cabello for Cinderella. Um, it's just very hard to know what they're even considering a comedy or a musical this year because they could very well put Nicole Kidman in there for being the Ricardos and 
she could be a competitor for Best Actress win. Um, I I don't know really there, but I do think Best Actor Andrew Garfield's going to win that for Tick Tick Boom. Um, it's just he's. It seems like he is locked for an Oscar nomination at this point, which is so relieving to know. And then you have like Anthony Ramos for In the Heights. You have Ben Platt for Dear Evan Hansen. You have um, Max Harwood for Everybody's Talking About Jamie, if that comes into play. And then uh, I have no idea how they're submitting the French Dispatch cast. Leo for Don't Look Up. That that could be his only competitor, Andrew Garfield in the Golden Globes. Um but for those, those are the three musical or comedy categories. So I do think this will be a year that they will go all out on musicals specifically. West Side Story will win Best Comedy or Musical. Andrew Garfield, Rachel Zegler. I think that that's an easy three there that I think will happen um, if they had access to um, West Side Story and if Netflix is even participating with the Globes because they were one of the one studios that thought they were so woke. I hate using that word. I'm sorry that I used that, but you know, in quotations, they thought, oh, we're going to be the bigger man and take a stand against the Hollywood foreign press, even though they clearly bought Roseman Pike and Golden Globe for that awful movie. I care a lot. Oh my God. But like, I don't know, like, with the whole submission of movies process, what they're even... It's such a question mark of what this show is going to look like in terms of what movies they had access to. And it's like, most of those members probably have a Netflix account, so they probably watch these movies on their own dime. But I don't know. We'll see. Um, I want to wrap this up. I want to get this under two hours because I don't think Anchor will let you post anything over two hours. Um, I did want to go over just real quick um, some of the differences. Damn it, this thing's going to crash again. Of what the differences between the, the new movie and the old stuff. Um, famously, uh, in kind of this re-listening to interviews with Sondheim, this was the very first score that, um, like, well, the very first big success of a score that um, Sondheim was involved with just the lyrics, Leonard Bernstein did the music. I didn't really read that information beforehand. That directed by Steven Spielberg, based on the musical, written by Arthur Lawrence. He also directed the original production. And he also, um, Leonard Bernstein did the music. Jerome Robbins was kind of a co-director of at least the film. I don't know about the stage show, but he choreographed the original show. Um, so the film's, Screenplay hues more closely to the Broadway script than the film adaptation. Um, Moreno, who plays Anita in the 61 film, plays Valentina, who is a reconceived and expanded version of the original character, Doc, who serves as the mentor of the teenage characters. Also, uh, a new black character, Abe, makes a cast more representative of the 1950s New York. I don't really remember that character all that much. Um, siblings Maria and Bernard, um, Bernardo are given the same surname, Vasquez. Uh, anybody's who's portrayed as a tomboy desperate to become a jet in the stage show in the film is portrayed by a transgender actor um, in this version. Okay, so um, I don't know if the character was also transgender or if 
that was specified, but um, Peck's choreographer is, choreography is original and does not attempt to re, uh, replicate Jerome Robbins' choreography, um, but some are very similar um, in style. Some scenes are played out in Spanish or a mix of Spanish and English with no subtitles pro providing translation. Spielberg further explained that this decision to not subtitle the Spanish dialogue was done out of respect of the inclu inclusivity of this, um, of, wait, hold on, um, decision was out of the respect of inclusivity of our intentions to hire a totally latinx cast to play the sharks boys and girls if i subtitled the spanish i'd simply be double down on the english and giving english the power over the spanish this was not going to happen in the film i needed the respect of the language enough not to subtitle it um, also the film follows song order from the broadway script except that g officer Krupke and Cool are performed in the first half, with One Hand, One Heart appealing, appearing in between. Tony sings Cool to Riff to get the Jets to wait to fight at the Rumble that evening, instead of Riff singing it to encourage the Jets to stay cool during the war council at Doc's drugstore. So yeah, I, I like that song a little bit more in that frame in the Broadway show, where it's kind of a getting everybody amped up song, but I did really like how they did it in this movie as well. Um, the locations I've mentioned with America is a little bit different. Um, I feel pretty takes place at a department store where Maria is um, working as a kind of a maid uh, um, at this bridal shop. Um, it usually is in Maria's bedroom. Um, uh, and the song appears after the rumble like in the stage show whereas in the film it's sung before the rumble which i didn't remember that the rumble itself takes place in a salt warehouse in this version instead of under a highway uh, instead of the streets as in the stage show in the 1961 film g officer krupke i've mentioned is in the um police brinks um Instead of the bridal shop, Maria and Tony sing One Hand, One Heart in a church of the intercession um, part of a date, which was really well shot. I loved how that was shot with the um, stained glass ceiling going onto their face. Um, the context of Something's Coming is slightly changed to reflect the character's background change for Tony. In the stage show and the film, Tony has... The feeling that something great is around the corner, or like he tells Riff. In this version, however, Valentina tries to get Tony to pick himself up and start again after a hard, damaging life. Prior to the start of the story, she gives him confidence to launch him into singing the song. Um, the dream ballet associated with Somewhere is omitted, um, like in the 61 film, still the orchestration of the music. Um, follows the balcony scene inside Maria's bedroom when she reacts to the joy of her romance. Later, somewhere is sing by Valentina. Maria sings a brief verse prize of tonight to Tony as he dies in this film version of the finale instead of somewhere, which I did not realize that at the time, but now that I do. Okay, I think that's all the fun facts I want to give for that movie. I just got to read that really fast. Um, this movie also does a very interesting thing where it frames the part of the town around the Lincoln Plaza area because it is showing that this one section of this of New York 
the neighborhood that most of this movie takes place is, is being torn down to build what is now Lincoln Plaza, where the, um, where Lincoln Center and the Met and, um, the other building, I can't remember now, where the ballets are. The Met, I think, is where the opera, the Met is the opera, and then the, um, whatever the ballet house is called, I'm blanking on it, but, like, that's also where film at Lincoln Center is, jazz at Lincoln Center is, and, um, yeah, so it's really cool, they did the premiere in that same area, too, so, um, yeah, it was very cool, kind of, how they, um, kind of centered that, um, I want to get this, I don't know if this is going to make it to Anchor. I might have to do this on SoundCloud instead. Um, final thoughts about this movie. Um, I think it's just so good, and I really want to see it again, but I'm not going to be able to see it again until January because there's so much coming out this holiday season, and I'm going to New York a week from yesterday. And so that's going to derail some of my momentum in watching new movies, even though I'm going to see three of them while I'm up there because I'm like, if I don't see them there, I'm going to have to wait till next year to see them. So I'm probably going, I'm definitely doing Spider-Man. I'm definitely doing Nightmare Alley while I'm up there. And then now that The View taping said that we're going to be there till 1230, the Wendy Williams show wanted me there at 12. And I think the for some reason put me in the wrong waiting list for the Drew Barrymore show. I don't think I'll be seeing a move or seeing another show after the view on Thursday. So I think I'm going to go see red rocket at Lincoln Plaza since I'm going to be up in that area after the view anyways. And then I'll use up my three New York out of town, a list credits that they have allotted me for the year. I hope that re resets starting in January and not like a calendar year from when I use these tickets because that's going to be very disappointing if come summer I want to go see some movies in New York while I'm doing another Broadway trip but we'll see um I really love this movie um I if if we have I don't think we're going to have time but if mother, if mother wants to go see this while I'm home for Christmas, like Christmas Eve morning, or not Christmas Eve morning, but like the day after Christmas morning before I'll need to get to the Kennedy Center at like 6 p.m. that day. We'll see. I'll, I'll talk to her if she wants to do that because I have officially taken off that morning because I was going to go see Licorice Pizza at East Street because I didn't, I just didn't feel like, I'm like rushing me to the metro so I can make it for a 12 o'clock to 5 o'clock ship to E Street the day after Christmas. I'm like, I don't think that's going to be worth it. And I need to get some clothes that I hope my mother read on my Christmas list. I don't want her to me don't want her to buy me clothes because she buys the wrong size and it becomes a big deal. And it's just like, I also just despise clothes as Christmas presents I'm like this isn't a Christmas present this to me necessities are not presents I know that sounds so snobbish of me but I'm like because people say I mean when we give gifts 
the whole the premise of a gift is the it's the thought that matters and i just don't think there's any thought put into giving me clothes for christmas because a they're always not the right size because look i gained a lot of weight during the pandemic i am now wearing 3xl shirts for comfort reasons i can wear a 2xl shirt but you know if i want to be comfortable and not wear a jacket with the shirt i gotta wear a 3xl now and then my whole pants situation has been a nightmare ever since i've had to go back to wearing long pants for work and it's just like i don't need you to buy me a pack of socks and underwear for christmas i would rather you just buy me the things i actually asked for on my list things i actually want and then we can go shopping the next day for clothes that i can try on and then if you want to consider that as a christmas gift fine but that is not what i want to open underneath the christmas tree with my other gifts i never photograph my clothes with my obligatory these are my christmas presents instagram post every year of all the different movies and cool books i got i was just like no like the one time i did was there were some really cool star wars shoes i was given to me when the force awakens came out other than that i don't want any fucking piece of clothes underneath my christmas tree for me that's my PSA on that because I've had aunts and uncles do that as well and I'm just like um I don't wear the shit that you just bought me I don't know who you think I am um just you know at this rate just give me a gift card I know that's a very lazy present but like Jesus Christ just one year I got this like $40 coat from H&M that was this really weird design and i'm like I, I am never going to wear this i don't know where in your right mind that i you thought that in any shape and form that this is something i would wear this is why i'm like don't buy me clothes for christmas do not do it because i have my own taste and it's a very stupid taste i don't like a lot of fancy clothes and also clothes for work is not that's not a gift to me that's once again a necessity for a uniform that's not a gift so that's that on that <laughs> um what's that story go see it with the family um it's wonderful 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 um so yeah um the next time you will have a podcast for me will be my dispatches from New York. I think because I will have a hotel room to myself for the first time since my 2017 trip when I saw SpongeBob, Hello Dolly, and uh, Once on this Island. I might do little reviews every day if I feel up to it and if I remember to do them. Because, you know, once I get back from New York, we're rocking and rolling with so much more shit in terms of work stuff. So, I feel like, because that episode I'm probably going to have to split into two. Because I'm going to ramble on 
for for each show for each, like half hour for each show and if i like if i allowed it a half an hour like i tried to for each show that would be one so half hour an hour 90 minutes two hours two and a half so i think i'm seeing seven shows right so it's uh girl marion utopia Comp assassin's company six yeah so that's seven so that would be three and a half hours if i did it in one sitting so i think i will split it up i will probably do girl from the north country american utopia assassin's company together so i can do the sondheim kind of thing together and do six moulin rouge hades town together and that way i can also talk about the touring version of hades town that i saw a month ago or two months ago at this point um does that sound good? Is anybody still listening? Who knows? Hi, Jenya, if you're listening. I know you said you were going to track down this podcast. If you've gotten to this point, congratulations. <laughs> you've made it longer than most people. Anyways, um, Steven Spielberg still got it. I don't know why you people always think he doesn't. I mean, there was a rough period in the 21st century where I was like, is Catch Me If You Can the only masterpiece Spielberg is going to give us this century? And I think he gave us another one. I mean, this is not a movie that I, like, walked out of the theater with, like, just, wow, life-changing five-star movie. I was kind of like, oh, I'm going to give it a four and a half for, like, minor quibbles I gave. And I'm like... Every year, I have one movie that I'm like, no matter the quality of the film, I'm just going to give it five stars, even though if I have quibbles, because it's just like, I'm just glad this is here and it exists. Last year, it was The Prom. The year before that was just all three of the new Star Wars movies that were that way. I'm like, I just love Star Wars, and I think all three of them are entertaining and do the job that they set out to do in terms of Star Wars. I do not want to talk to anybody about Rise of Skywalker because people still bitch about that movie two years later. And I'm like, it, you all talk about that movie so much that I just secretly believe you're obsessed with it. Like, I've moved on. Oscar Isaac has moved on. Why haven't you moved on at this point? Um... I'm trying to think if there was a movie in 2018 that I did that. Well, Love, Simon, I originally gave four and a half stars on my first viewing because I saw that movie with, like, three other people, like, at nine o'clock on opening night. So when I got to see it with a crowd and they really reacted in such a beautiful, moving way, that's when I, like, gave it five stars. Um, I'm trying to think what else was in my top, like... 10 of 2018 that might have qualified for that because it was love simon it was um what was my number oh hereditary florida no florida was 2017 eighth grade can you ever forgive me the favorite and a couple of others were five stars that year i want to say so yeah i think love simon kind of after that second viewing kind of came into that slot i'm like is it like this groundbreaking masterpiece that's like <laughs> on the level of all about eve and 
like Citizen Kane. Probably not, but I think it's an incredible film for the genre and what it is and what it represents in terms of films that have never existed at that level and scale. Um, and then, like, 2016, La La Land was always going to be that movie for me that no matter what, I was going to give five stars. And, like, that was another one where when I first saw it, I'm like, this isn't the whopping like, I didn't, that's not my favorite movie of 2016. It was my number three that year. But I saw it over and over again. And, like, despite some minor quibbles with that, I also am like, I don't care. I'm giving it five stars. Um, so every year I kind of have that movie. And I think that's happening with this movie. The other thing is, if I don't give this movie five stars and none of these other movies that are in the wings... I get blown away by this is going to be the only year in my life well there are some years early early on in film history that I've never seen a masterpiece from that year that I've fallen over for but like this will be the first time in eons that like definitely in my like when I'm currently making a top 10 list era like 20 2009 on where I'm like okay, here are my favorite movies of the year. Like, there has not been a year where I've only seen one movie that I've just given five stars to. I mean, this year will be also different if it's only two movies I give five stars to, which are Annette and this movie. Um, because, like, Barb and Star is a movie that I'm like, can we put that in the movie theater? I see it with a crowd and then just be like, nope, I'm giving it five stars. Because even though I watched it like four times in like the span of 48 hours at home and loved it so much, I still like was like, it was one of those February, like, am I being crazy? Like giving this five stars type movie where I'm like, there, you know, there's a little bit of like a pacing lag at the very beginning of the movie that I'm like, Am I able to forgive that and just say five-star movie? Like, so I can have three five-star movies this year if none of these other movies blow me away. Because, like, Mass, I rewatched it. I still have a big issue with that movie, which is the first ten minutes and, like, the last ten minutes with this fucking... That lady that works at the church. It's like, that character is so unneeded in this piece, and it just throws off the whole like, just the intensity of the movie, and its flow, and it's, like, what it's achieving, it's, like, why is this woman here, but, like, I don't know, like, Red Rocket, maybe, I gave Florida Project five stars, it was my number three of 2017, um, you know, Nightmare Alley sounds like it's really divided people, so I don't know if that's gonna do it for me, you know, Spider-Man Homecoming was my favorite movie of 2017, I will see if Far From Home, or sorry, No Way Home blows me away. It's bad that I can never remember the title of the movie. Um, I'm really awaiting for the worst person in the world. Everybody who's seen that loves it. Um, maybe Drive My Car, the three-hour Japanese film I'm seeing on Saturday might blow me away. Um, maybe I, I'm the outlier in love, don't look up, finally, out of the three kind of prestige Adam McKay movies then I've not enjoyed the first two of them and it sounds like if you did not enjoy those two you're not gonna like this one either so I don't know about that um I'm not gonna 
just suddenly think the Matrix Resurrections is going to be the masterpiece of the Matrix franchise after giving all of them under three and a half stars. Um, Sing 2, I don't think it's going to get five stars. The Tender Barb, Lost Daughter. Um, what else is coming out? The King's Men, A Journal for Jordan. Um, uh, Licorice Pizza. You know, I'm not a Paul Thomas Anderson nut. So I don't think that movie is going to blow me away like it has. But, you know, Phantom Thread really impressed me. And I've given Paul Thomas Anderson five stars before. There Will Be Blood, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, and um, Phantom Thread are all four and a half star movies for me. So maybe I I fall in love with Licorice Pizza. Um, I've already seen Tragedy of Macbeth. That's very good, but not a five star movie. Um... Yeah, it's just like, I don't know what's going to become of the rest of the movie year in terms of things that uh, this probably is going to be my lowest count of five-star movies in a long, long time. So thank you, West Side Story, for joining Annette as another movie I could say five stars to and not be guilty about it. Because, you know, a lot of people have given it five stars, and I'm like, good. So I don't like, like crazy person being like like into the woods which i gave that was my into the woods in 2014 was my kind of hall pass movie for that one too where i'm like is this movie a head-to-toe masterpiece mm, who knows i loved it i'm giving it five stars i don't care what you all think of it but you know <laughs> anyways let's wrap it up um something's coming no the podcast is over so um, Mambo. Mambo music is Something's Coming, performed by Ansel Elgort. And tonight, on by Ansel Elgort and Rachel Zegler, both songs written by Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Just a world, there's a star tonight. Tonight, tonight, the world is full of light. With suns and moons all over the place. Tonight, tonight, the world is wild and bright, going mad, shooting sparks into space. Today, the world was just an address, a place for me to live in, no better than
Sí, ya voy, me estoy vistiendo. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Sí, ok. Why I call you? I'll wait till you remember. <laughs>